0: Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Providence Community Church, the faithful who braved the weather and who didn't go out of town for Thanksgiving. Glad to see you all. Ordinarily, we would not start with me saying something, but tonight is the beginning of a new season called Advent. And so each week we're going to light a candle because Advent is a season of light. And it reminds us that even in the darkness, even though we're waiting there is still light that shines. And so, tonight our theme is hope. And Kristen and Jaron Payne will light our first candle in this first week of Advent. So as we light the candle of hope, Kristen uh, and I are, we hope in Jesus that no matter what happens in life, no matter the darkest times and periods in, in life, um, Jesus is our hope in those moments of darkness. Um, and that no matter what happens he'll be present with us thank you i'd like to invite everyone to stand tonight and we can begin our night in prayer or our time in prayer Blessed Lord, who caused us all holy, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Sorry I missed you last week. I was out of town for some family stuff, and I heard you had a great time. I'm grateful for you all, so let me say Happy Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for you, and it's good to be here. It's good to be here this first week of Advent. Advent, as we said earlier, is a season of light. It's a season of waiting, waiting for the king who has come, but is yet to come again. We place ourselves in this story of God's people who waited for a savior, a king. They had a word for it called Messiah, an anointed one. We place ourselves in their story, in their mindset, trying to grope through a dark world with people assaulting them, and we wait. We wait because even though this king we know as Jesus did come, he is still waiting to come again. So that's why we sing these songs of waiting, coming, we wait, because the world we see is not the world as it ought to be. And so this is a season where we both look back and we look forward, but it is always a season of light and waiting. So this season of Advent, which is four weeks prior to Christmas, where we celebrate the birth of that king who's come, we're going to look at some prophets We're going to look at uh, texts that were selected in what's called the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a fancy way of just saying that it's what a lot of churches in the world are going to read and look at in this season. So it's our little church's little way of connecting to the broader church that is waiting, connected to the broader church in this season of light. So tonight we have a brief passage and perhaps a brief sermon, if you pray and cross your fingers, Uh, And this is from a very long book called Jeremiah. So I invite you to turn there to Jeremiah chapter 33. And I'll read it for us. It's on the screen this evening. Beginning in verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah, In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for all it took to get each one of us here. Thank you for life and breath. Thank you for this family that you've assembled and knit together by your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be sensitive, as we've been sensitive in the songs, to you who inhabits the praise of your people, who inhabits us as your church, as your body. It's a great mystery. And so as we enter into this season, we're not ignoring the darkness of violence and racism and fear in our world. We're not ignoring it, but we're choosing to cling to you. And so tonight as we hear these words in a very dark situation, may they speak to the dark situations in which we find ourselves, and may they be a light that propels us until the day when all will be new. Jesus, we wait for you, we trust you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, on August 27th of 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. checked into a hotel in Washington, D.C. at 10 p.m. And uh, he was there because he was going to speak at a large gathering the following day. And so he did what I did in college always, and that is wait to the last minute to write a speech. And so what he did when he checked into his room at 10 o'clock in Washington, D.C., was he began to write this speech that he would deliver the following day at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which is kind of an awesome title if you think about it, Jobs and Freedom, just kind of tack on freedom at the end. But he set to writing and outlining and manuscripting at 10 p.m., and he says that it took him till about 4 a.m., which made me, again, feel a lot better about those college papers I mentioned earlier that I would pull the all-nighters waiting to the last minute. But uh, this, of course, that you're probably guessing, this speech was a lot more important than a college term paper. It was, of course, a speech that would be given to 250,000 folks who showed up At the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, they gathered there 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. They gathered there on August 28th of 1963... Because they had been waiting for justice. They had been waiting after generations of oppression, after generations of violence, after decades of segregation in schools and buses and restaurants. They had been waiting and waiting and waiting. And the momentum seems to be building because the violence was escalating. And Dr. King took the podium and he began to speak the words of his manuscript that he had done the night before. And so it's going well, and he's reading and reading, but then he took a left turn about midway through, and he says that he had shared a uh, phrase that was kind of not in his mind the night before, not in his mind really that week. It was a phrase that he had said two months prior in June at another rally, and he had said this phrase that you could probably guess by now. You ready? You want to guess? Can I do this? And. Risk. Thank you. I was about to have like a major fail if nobody passed eighth grade history. It's I have a dream, of course. That's like answering Jesus in Sunday school, right? It's the most famous speech, probably, surely in the last hundred years. Maybe top three of all American history. But he wasn't even going to speak it. He had this whole thing manuscripted, and halfway through that story, or that speech rather, he starts to launch into, I have a dream. And he goes, I have a dream. He's talking about his children playing with white children. And he's talking about, I have a dream that these states that have denied this will let freedom ring. And so he says, let freedom ring, let freedom ring, and I have a dream. And one passage toward the end of it, he takes all of these other kind of prophetic messages Spoken to people who are hopeless and waiting and crying out for injustice. And he gathered up these words in our Old Testament of the prophets. And he said, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Then he says, this is our hope. This is the faith that I will go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. I think that that word in which he summarizes the prophetic angst of a people in waiting, the prophetic angst of a people who look out at the world of darkness and say, this is not how it ought to be. It's in those moments that hope is born. And hope is our theme tonight. And hope, as Dr. King said, is hewn out of mountains of despair. Because hope is a stubborn way of looking out at the darkness and saying, I refuse to believe that darkness and my circumstance has the last word over my life. I will choose to trust something greater than myself. For Dr. King, of course, that was Jesus. And for even Jeremiah, it was a Jesus he had not yet known. And he speaks a word of hope to a desperate people, an oppressed people, in the worst situation in their history. And he spoke, in effect, I have a dream. And his dream, of course, was for a king who would come and be the king like they've never seen. He says that it's not just a grand, nice idea. It is something that God has promised. Do you see that in verse 14? This is the Lord speaking. The days are coming. Which is to say, wait just a little longer, declares the Lord. When I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. He's made a promise. But before we get to the promise, I think the context of these nations he just listed, Israel and Judah, the context of these words in which Jeremiah is speaking is just as important as the words themselves. So we're going to talk just a bit before we get back into those words of the Lord, that promise of the Lord. We're going to get into the background because it's just as important as the words uh, that, that Jeremiah is speaking. So in case you thought it was going to be a short sermon, I still have hope. So let's roll through this background, and then we'll roll through the verses. you with me? I have a dream. Thank you, Mark. I have a dream that one day I will tell you the story of Israel and Judah. You know that Jeremiah, in this really terrible, sad, depressing book has this beautiful section right here in the middle, chapters 30 to 33, that's actually called the Book of Hope. And it's a book of hope because he's writing it in the darkest part, or what Dr. King called the mountain of despair of Israel's history. In fact, Jeremiah himself, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 32, is in jail. And when is he in jail? He's in jail in Jerusalem, watch, while Jerusalem is being attacked. Something about Jerusalem, that famous city, you've heard about it in the Psalms called Mount Zion. Jerusalem was the capital city in the nation of Judah. We had just looked at that, God's promise to Israel and Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom, right? There is a time in Israel's history where it wasn't just all Israel. Judah was the southern half, and Israel was the northern half. In fact, Israel had most of the tribes. It had ten of them. Judah had two of them, but watch, it had Jerusalem. You with me so far? So Israel, dude, they've already gone through their darkest time. That northern kingdom had been blotted off the map a few years before by a nation called the Assyrians. So then that leaves little sweet Judah with little sweet Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, ready and ripe for attack from the next superpower that would come along called the Babylonians. So you've got this Judah kingdom and the city of Jerusalem with Babylon coming in, Egypt coming on if they don't, and they are looking at a dark and bleak situation. In steps Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is tasked with prophesying and speaking on the Lord's behalf to a bunch of people who are looking darkness, dead in the face. And so Jeremiah, when he gets to this collection of all these oracles, where the first 30 chapters in this book, that's really a drag if you sit down and read it, it's really Complex because he's trying to articulate the grief and the political bullying and violence and terror of his day. Do we live in a country, in a season in this world in which we see bullying and violence and darkness? Yes. And so you've got 30 chapters in Jeremiah where he's trying to articulate this is what happens when God's reign is not reigning over you this is what happens when you deliberately turn from me if you are God's people this is what happens they've known it for generations and they've gone so far down the path that they cannot see light and now all they see is these enemy nations Babylon coming in Jeremiah is in jail He's been speaking on God's behalf, trying to articulate the pain of the hopeless people, and then he speaks a word of hope. He speaks, and I have the dream, and he does it in the midst of Babylon, sacking, wiping out, killing people in God's holy city, Jerusalem. If they survived that attack, they were chained up, and sent on a bitter march up to Babylon, a foreign land, a foreign empire with foreign gods, far from home, far from hope, and they've got to be thinking, "Where is God?" Can you imagine the heart, the the questions that raise in these people's hearts? Where is God? How did we get here? When will we get out of here? Where can I find any hope of rescue? Now, raise your hand if you've been exiled to an enemy nation. Okay, that's what I, oh, Aaron, good. That's what I thought. Nobody, not even you, Aaron. But have you been in situations where you're carted off into a certain kind of exile where you feel far from home, you feel far from hope, and you are in a place of deep despair? Now, could you imagine Jeremiah speaking a word over these desperate people? Could you imagine someone in your darkest time speaking a word over you that basically says something to this effect? Hey, cheer up, dude. It's going to be all right. One of the greatest things I learned in seminary was like not even in a pastoral ministry course. It was at the tail end of some theology class I couldn't tell you a thing about in the semester, but I remembered this story because it shaped and affected the way we need to talk in those moments of darkness. Platitudes don't work. And I learned that from this story in which the pastor uh, who is teaching this class sat down with a woman who had just lost her husband to 40 years, and he's at the wake, and he saddles up beside her after everyone's gone, the party's over, and she's left in the funeral home going home for the first time to the exile of sleeping in her bed alone for the first time in 40 years. And this pastor, who made the mistake so I didn't, saddles up to her and says, well, you know what? He's in a better place. And he said that she looked at him with tears in her eyes and said, I know he's in a better place, but I want him home for dinner when I get there. Sometimes platitudes don't work. When we're grieving at funerals, we do not grieve as those without hope. We are stubbornly refusing platitudes, but we're also refusing to give in to the darkness. So even as God's people are being carted off, it seems that God is going to promise to work newness where there is seemingly no evidence of newness to be had. He is going to say, there is going to be a king who comes and fulfills a promise that I made to the people of Israel, who got carted off and wiped out, and to Judah, who got carted off and are getting wiped out. That's what he said in verse 15. And here's what God says, as words of hope, as words of a dream, that are founded in his promise, regardless of our circumstance. Let's look back again at verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout From David's line. So, what was that promise? The promise was that David, who was the king of Israel, a king after God's own heart, he was the second king of Israel, that from his line, you imagine the family tree, right? And then on and on it goes with bad king, bad king, bad king, divided kingdom, this, that, and the other, politics, enemies, blah, 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 years later, God said, hey, remember when I promised that someone will be on the throne of David from David's family from now and forever. There will always be someone after my own heart doing my will and it will happen again even after the parade of low-life kings. Remember that promise? Yes. I will make in David's family tree that has looked like a gnarly crooked mess in my old backyard, I'm going to make a righteous branch, blip, shoot out from David's line. We just sang in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the key of David to open wide our home. We sing in another verse about the root of Jesse, which is David's dad. These are Advent hopes and promises because God's promise is that God will send send a king from David's line. Well, what will he do? Look in verse 15. He will do what is just and right in the land. This is a common refrain for what God's Messiah should do. He should not do what's corrupt and unjust. He should do what's just and right. This is a hope that was unfulfilled for God's people. This is a hope that's unfulfilled for our nation, which is not God's people, it's a nation, but in whom God's people, the kingdom of God, dwell. Yes? We know what it looks like to have not-so-great kings. And the promise is that you will have a king from David's line, just like I promised, and he will do what's just, and he will do what's right. He will make things new. And he says this, don't forget, as the people are getting carted away from the very throne that God promised from which that king would reign. This is a hopeless situation. But hope is about believing God's word, God's promise over the words of our circumstance. And in case you needed some more of God's words to propel you through the darkness... He says to His people, He says to us in waiting. In verse 16, In those days when that king has come, Judah will be saved. Wait, Judah that is being demolished and infiltrated by Babylonians? And Jerusalem will live in safety. Oh yeah, Jerusalem, the very opposite of safety. If there is an opposite of safe, it is Jerusalem. Then, and even now, what kind of hope and promise is this? And if he didn't go far enough, he says, this is the name by which it, or this city, Jerusalem, will be called. The Lord, our righteous Savior. So look at here. God's people will be saved. They will live in safety. And he will even give them a new name. The name that they were singing as a dirge on the way out was, Where are you, God? And he will give them a new name that says, I am the Lord who has saved you. They're walking out saying, We're forgotten. And he's saying, I'm naming you. You're my covenant people. They go on the bitter march to a new land, and they say, That's it. We are absolutely hopeless. And he says, I'm going to rename this city the Lord, our righteous Savior. Exiled, forgotten, hopeless. If you are depressed, if you are sad, he wants to rename your pain. We have a God we can hope in who renames the most dark and despicable parts of our suffering. And he names it, the Lord, our righteous Savior. It is his king coming to a community in waiting. And the words in their heart and the questions that are rising up in their minds are just clamoring to be heard. Right now where you sit, after a week of thanksgiving, a week with family members in which the paths are not straight, in which the relationships are not healthy. He wants to rename that. He wants to make that new. In those situations where you are looking and you cannot see the step ahead, He wants to give you a word of hope and speak over you that He will renew you, He will restore you, and your circumstance will not have the last word. Christian hope believes that newness is not only possible, but it's promised. And if it's not here yet, maybe we simply cannot see the arc. Imagine a huge arc of a pathway. And it's going out before your life in darkness in the valley of the shadow, and it's bent just around the corner. If we can't see it, We see the path as a straight linear line that goes into oblivion. But I believe that God sees the arc that bends around the corner and He sees the end in which He will bring us back and restore us. And it may not be in the way we expect. It may not be when we expect. But it is surely the God who not only renames us, but He is the one that renews all the bad and He works it out for His purpose. God, why are we paralyzed by racism and fear and violence at home? God, why are we paralyzed by racism and fear of those abroad threatening us? Because we cannot see the ark in which the Lord, our righteous Savior, will bend it back to His new world, His new kingdom, His word that says, that's not the end. So all of these voices welling up within us are clamoring for attention, but the question is, will you allow yourself to hear a word of hope in the midst of your exile? Will we refuse to believe that the darkness is the last word, that newness isn't only possible, it's promised? May we believe God's word over the words of our circumstance. May we see that he is is a living and trustworthy hope. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our world that is racked and broken, that is dominated by fear, and we ask that your love would cast out fear. We pray that it would start in our hearts, that the fear of the next step into the unknown would be a step with your word as a lamp into our feet. We pray that songs of hope, of your love that endures forever, would be on our lips. We pray that the refrain, Jesus is Lord, would be in our hearts. And that we would walk together as a people, stubborn in this world of darkness, praying and working out the hope of the kingdom that has come and His coming. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so now we invite you to partake of the body and the blood that was shed. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He broke it and He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Then He took the wine and in the same way He blessed it And he said, this is my blood that was shed for you. It was a new covenant to create a new Israel, a new people working out under the reign of God in hope, in peace, in joy, and in love. And so we come as those who are in Christ, in the Messiah who came and is coming until the day we see Him and we eat this meal with Him in the coming kingdom. So we invite you to stand, to sing, to respond, and if you're in Christ, we invite you to come.